Good morning, everyone. My name is Mark. I serve as one of the pastors here, and it is a pleasure to have you worshiping with us today as we continue our sermon series through the book of 1 Peter, uh, to which we've given the subtitle, Faithful Living in a Foreign World. And last week, we began to work our way through chapter 4 of this book, where Peter turns his attention to a very important topic, but um, one that we tend to avoid, but also one that we will never avoid, and that is suffering. We try to avoid it, but we can't. Some of you have experienced suffering in your past. Some of you are experiencing suffering now. All of us will experience suffering at some point. It's not a matter of if we will suffer in this life, but when. As a great theologian, as the great theologian Wesley once said, life is pain. Anyone who says differently is selling something. This isn't John Wesley, but Wesley, who also went by the name Dread Pirate Roberts for a portion of his life. And for those of you who do not know that obscure cultural reference from the 80s, don't worry about it. Just do yourself a favor and watch The Princess Bride, one of the best movies ever made. I mean it. There it is. But on a much more serious note, although I haven't gone through um, a great deal of pain and suffering personally, in my vocation as a pastor, I know that many of you have. You know, I've sat beside hospital beds. I've stood beside caskets. I've walked with you through some of the deepest and darkest points of your life. Here's the, here's the reality. We all live in the backwash of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. We all live in the fallout of their rebellion against God. And suffering is now reality for everyone in this broken world. But there's a specific kind of suffering that Peter addresses in this chapter that's over and above the normal suffering that everyone in life experiences. And that's this, suffering for being a follower of Jesus, suffering as a Christian. Now keep in mind that Peter is writing to believers in the first century who were being maligned because of their faith. They were being singled out. They were, they were being persecuted. It was sort of lightly at this point, but it was felt. You know, they were uh, being called things like atheistic cannibals. Now, where did that come from? Well, they were called atheists because they didn't worship the plethora of Roman gods that everyone else worshipped, the Greco-Roman gods, or the emperor. Oh, you're atheists since you don't worship the things everybody else does. They were called cannibals because people misunderstood and misconstrued the Lord's Supper. Christians were, in, in the time this letter was written, they were being denied jobs, being de- denied advancement in society, um, being denied economic opportunities in this first century Greco-Roman culture. They were experiencing social isolation because of their faith. And some of them were even experiencing persecution to the point of imprisonment and death. You know, most Christians in the West don't know this kind of suffering. Certainly not to the level that it was in the the first century um, in Asia Minor Minor where where, uh, Peter was addressing his epistle. I read from a Bible commentator this week named Kieran Jobes who said this. Peter was speaking in a time when Christian values and the resulting way of life 
contrasted markedly with Greco-Roman society. In that setting, one could hardly be an uncompromising Christian and remain unrecognized as such. Modern Western society has for many centuries been so largely shaped by the Judeo-Christian ethic that acceptable values of Christians and of unbelievers have not necessarily conflicted so sharply. From the time of Constantine to rather recently, at least a nominal Christian profession was socially acceptable and in many places even the social norm. Therefore, Western Christians may not be able to relate to the theme of suffering for Christ in 1 Peter, since most have not lived in a social situation similar to the original readers. And as I read um, Dr. Job's words, I agreed with her. I agreed with her. But then I also thought about the direction that our culture is taking. How biblical views of things like marriage and sexuality and gender have become increasingly countercultural offensive, viewed as regressive, and even dangerous. And I don't think that we are that far removed from a time when many of your jobs may be threatened if you continue to profess biblical faith. In some ways, we are already there. In other ways, it's becoming more and more prevalent that advancement in a company or a government-funded position will be denied if you believe that the Bible is true. If you believe what the Bible says about marriage or sexuality or gender, where if you refuse to teach or promote that which is contrary to Scripture, you'll be faced with a choice whether to keep your job or hold on uncompromisingly to your faith. We are on a trajectory as a society where as a church, I believe we need to be prepared to lose our tax-exempt status in the not-too-distant future. And as individuals, we'll likely need to be prepared to lose jobs, houses, cars, reputations, if we are to uncompromisingly hold on to biblical faith. So that's why it's important, kind of as preventative medicine, for us to study and internalize how to suffer as Christians, internalize Peter's instructions on how to suffer as Christians that he spells out here in chapter four of his epistle because his words are gonna become increasingly necessary and practical as we seek to faithfully navigate the rising tide of secularism in our own time. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open it to 1 Peter chapter four. And we'll pick up where we left off last week with verse 12. If you're able, would you please stand with me as we read together from God's word. 1 Peter chapter four, beginning in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God, but let him glorify God in that name. For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to their faithful creator while doing good. Pray with me. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the instructions that we find in it on how to respond appropriately to what's going on in the world around us. 
how to honor you, how to glorify you, how to lovingly and faithfully point people to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And so as we take instruction from your word this morning, may your spirit apply your word to our hearts for your glory, for our good, and so that the gospel shines forth from your people, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And when Jesus Christ said, pick up your cross and follow me, he meant at least two things. One, that he was going to suffer, and two, that Christians who follow him are also going to suffer. And in our text this morning, I'd like to draw your attention to four instructions that Peter gives on how to suffer when our culture begins pushing back against our faith. So if you're taking notes, you can write this at the top of your notes page, four instructions on how to suffer as a Christian. Let's start with verse 12, where we find Peter's first instruction. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You'll notice here at the beginning of the verse that it it starts with a word, beloved. And when I read that, my mind immediately went back to the Gospels where Jesus is called beloved twice. Once at his baptism, once at his transfiguration. A voice from heaven um, comes forth and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But when you look at the life of Jesus and what he had to endure, what he had to go through, and how he was treated, what he suffered, does it look like he was loved by God? No. It doesn't. He's hated, he's abandoned, he's maligned, he's betrayed, he's denied, he's falsely tried, he's arrested, he's beaten to within an inch of his life, and then he's murdered. And you'd not look at Jesus' life and say, wow, there's a man that's loved by God. And yet he was. He was beloved. And Peter reminds us here that by calling us beloved, that we too are loved by God in the same way. Even when life isn't going well, even when it doesn't feel like we're being loved by God, beloved, do not be surprised at the painful trial, the fiery trial when it comes up upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Right here is Peter's first instruction on how to suffer as a Christian. Number one, don't be surprised. This isn't abnormal. Say that out loud with me. Don't be surprised. This isn't abnormal. This isn't heaven, so don't be shocked when hell shows up, okay? There's a tremendously powerful lie that's being circulated, even in Christian circles, that says this. If you do the right thing, good things will happen to you. If you do the right thing, good things will happen to you. Your life will go well. Well, did Jesus do the right thing? Yes. Did life go well for Jesus? No. And so it simply isn't true that if you always do the right thing, then life will go smoothly. Being a Christian does not somehow make you exempt from living in the backwash of Adam and Eve's sin in this sin-fraught world. Ever since our first parents disobeyed God, hijacked their lives, pursued happiness on their own terms, broke free from God's authority and standards, they got their freedom, but their freedom also turned out to be freedom from God's presence, God's life, God's love. What Adam and Eve thought would be freedom turned out to be oppression. What looked like blessing turned out to be a curse. And God spelled out this curse for them in Genesis chapter 3. Sin shattered everything. Their relationships would now be broken. Work would be hard. Everything changed. The wages of sin is what? Death. All creation is now under the curse of sin, and so suffering is to be expected in this sin-fraught world. Pain, heartache, brokenness, suffering, injustice, death has become the norm 
It's not strange or surprising. It's to be expected. But on top of this general suffering that every human experiences in this fallen world is another layer of suffering that I mentioned earlier to be expected for Christians. Persecution, at least historically speaking, I think we're living kind of, have lived kind of in a bubble from this for a couple hundred years here. But as far as suffering as a Christian, this is also the norm, not abnormal. Listen to the words of Jesus. In this world, you will have trouble. If the world hates you, keep in mind they hated me first. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. The Apostle Paul picks up the same theme in his letter to Timothy. Anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. Remember, our world operates in open rebellion against God. And as followers of Jesus, so as followers of Jesus, is to live in the crosshairs of that. We're behind enemy lines, so to speak. They hated and crucified Jesus. So what should we expect? To be on the cover of People magazine? No. Peter is saying here, to follow the way of Jesus is to live in the crosshairs of the world. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You know, Peter uses the word fiery, fiery trial here as a, really as a figure of speech, but his figurative language is prophetic because it's about to become literal for his original audience. In AD 64, 64 AD, only a year or two after Peter penned this letter and it was delivered to the recipients, a fire would break out in Rome that would destroy two-thirds of the city. Historians uh, speculate, and they're probably right, that Nero himself had it set, while, conveniently, while he was out of town, so that he could rebuild Rome in his own image. Two-thirds of the city was destroyed. Many people lost their lives. So many people lost property. The citizens were, were outraged at this. How did this happen? Nero needed a scapegoat. Guess who the convenient scapegoats were? Well, there's this little sect that believed that the world would be destroyed by fire someday. Christians, they started the fire. And so what what was, you know, opposition to Christianity then became state-sponsored persecution. The temperature turned up. It was a fiery trial at that point. Nero started having Christians fed to lions in the gladiatorial games in Roman arenas. He would wrap Christians in pitch and resin, run them through with stakes, plant the stakes upright in the ground around his palace. When everyone showed up for his elaborate evening state dinner parties, he would light the carcasses of Christians on fire as party torches. So if you're tempted to think we have it bad, it's been much worse for us at different times and places throughout history. And it's much worse for our brothers and sisters in many places, even today, who are undergoing active persecution for their faith. But it's to be expected, Peter says. This isn't abnormal. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So how should we respond to suffering as a Christian? First of all, don't be be surprised. This isn't abnormal. And secondly, say this out loud with me. Don't be discouraged. You're being blessed. Don't be discouraged. You're being blessed. Now, when these early Christians were being maligned by society, and a little later when their brothers and sisters in Christ were being used as human torches for Nero's garden parties, perhaps and probably the last thing they wanted to do was rejoice or felt like doing was rejoice. It would have been easy for them to be discouraged, to believe that God had it out for them and was punishing them in some form or fashion. You know, if God loved us, our lives wouldn't be going this way. He must, he must be punishing us for something. It's easy for us to get discouraged and to, to fall into that same way of thinking, to believe that same lie, even today when our lives don't go as planned, right? If we start getting a little bit of pushback, we start thinking God must be punishing me for doing something wrong. But Peter makes it clear here that suffering persecution as a Christian is not punitive. It's actually a blessing from God. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. What? Where did Peter get such a backward idea? Well, let me read some words of of somebody he hung out with for about three years. Matthew chapter 5, 11 through 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. These are words of Jesus, in case you didn't pick up on that. Verse 12. Rejoice and be glad. For reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, now how on earth can it be a blessing from God to be maligned and persecuted for your faith? That seems counterintuitive, right? We consider ourselves blessed as Americans when life is going well. Hashtag blessed on our social media. You know, what do we like show that when life isn't going well and say hashtag? No, we don't do that. It's only when like you've got this perfect picture of your coffee and your nice breakfast and view of the beach with your feet up. You know, that's, that's when we are thinking of being blessed. But the biblical concept of blessing is not that. In fact, it's the opposite of that. You know, my concept of blessing got rewired about, uh, I guess it was about seven years ago now, seven and a half years ago, when I went on a um, short-term trip to Africa to be part of a conference um, with a ministry called Alarm uh, African Leadership and Reconciliation Ministries, and leaders from eight different East African countries were gathered there at this conference. And some of them came from countries um, where um, Islam was the dominant religion and where Christians underwent severe persecution for their faith. I'll never forget one morning listening to a devotional by a pastor from Sudan. And he got up and he was sharing this devotional from Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, which says this, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And here was this guy who had scars on his face, scars on his arms from the, the beatings that he had taken as a Christian pastor. He'd been thrown into prison multiple times for sharing his faith. And and with joy on his face through the scars, I'll never forget his words. He said this, my friends, we've been given two gifts, salvation and suffering. 
And his smile did not go away when he said suffering. I've never forgotten that. He was somebody who bore on his body the physical marks of persecution, and he was rejoicing in it. He recounted how his suffering had refined his faith, how his suffering and his beatings had had drawn him closer to Jesus. When he sat alone in a prison cell, he, he recounted how he felt this communion with his Savior. Because when you go through shared suffering with somebody, it bonds you together like nothing else. There's a deep fellowship with Jesus that can only be formed by going through what he went through. This is why Paul says in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. This is how it can be a blessing from God to be persecuted. Jesus suffered persecution. So if you do as well, you share in his sufferings and a deep bondedness forms. And if persecution makes you closer to Jesus, my friends, that's a gift. To suffer for Christ is to be blessed by God. So hear this loud and clear. You are loved by God. So any suffering that he allows into your life is not punitive. God is not out to get you. In fact, quite the opposite. If your suffering for Christ is drawing you closer to Christ, closer to Jesus, God is blessing you. Don't confuse the world's hatred for you with the Father's heart for you. The Bible's super clear on this. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is 100% for you as a believer as a follower of Jesus. Just because your life is hard does not mean that the Father's heart is not filled with love. The evidence is the palpable presence of his spirit in the midst of your pain. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because why? The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Verse 15, let's read on. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. You know, there is a type of suffering out there that comes from doing wrong things, self-inflicted, or just being a jerk (laughs) or a meddler, as Peter uh, says here. This type of suffering is deserved. And Peter's making sure that we know that he's not talking about this kind of suffering. So if you're posting insensitive comments on social media and somebody pushes back on it or even calls you a name, don't come crying to me as your pastor saying you're being persecuted as a Christian. No, you're being a jerk. You're using truth as a weapon rather than a tool. It was never meant to be used that way. You don't need to prove that you're right. Get off Twitter, get off Facebook, start praying for people, practically loving them instead. Okay, pastoral rant over. Verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Peter tells us here not to be ashamed for suffering as a Christian. You know, the term Christian was a derogatory term in the first century. It was... um, 
made up actually by non-believers to say, oh, Christians, little Christs, because they looked like who they were following. They acted like Jesus, and they were being made fun of as Christians. But Peter says, hey, wear that label. <laughs> it's a good one. If people see you looking like Christ, that's, that's a label not to be ashamed of, but to be proud of. Don't be ashamed in bearing that name. Glorify God with it. And right here's his third instruction on how to suffer as a Christian. First, don't be surprised. This isn't abnormal. Don't be discouraged. You're being blessed. Say this out loud with me. Don't be ashamed. You're being purified. Be proud to be a Christian and don't go towards shame. There's nothing to be ashamed of. It doesn't really matter what the world thinks of you. God is smiling on you and his smile alone is alone what counts. Okay, Peter, but suffering feels like we're being judged by God. Well, in a way, you are. Peter says, speaking of suffering, he, he uses two words here. One is test in verse 12, and one is judgment in verse 17. And the idea that he's trying to convey is that suffering is a purifying test of our faith. Now, now, tests often have negative connotations because you can fail them, right? But let me remind you, condemnation cannot be the outcome here for those who are in Christ. Whatever judgment, whatever this judgment is that Peter says is beginning with the household of God, Romans 8.1 is still true. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Jesus took all of our condemnation on the cross. So what is this test, this judgment I think it's this. Lawyers have to pass their bar exam. Accountants need to pass their CPA exam. Um, NASCAR drivers have time trials. These are tests that lead to qualification, credentials, affirmation, endorsements. A judging body confers approval on the one who passes the test. Peter is saying here that suffering, these fiery trials, this persecution, is a purifying test of our faith. They're not meant to destroy us, but to re reveal who we really are and whose we really are. Like fire refines gold, purifying and burning away the dross, these trials are forging character and purifying our souls. But wouldn't loving God make life easy for us? No. We don't even do that for our own children. The more we love our kids, the more we discipline them and challenge them to do hard things. Not so they'll fail, but so that they'll learn their strength. God is working in all our trials and pain to grow us, refine us, purify us. This is judgment without condemnation, but this suffering of believers should serve as a warning shot to the world it should serve as a wake-up call to those who reject Jesus and don't obey the gospel of God. As it says here, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. If it begins with us, what will, the outcome, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If believers receive judgment without condemnation, unbelievers will receive judgment and condemnation. And as we endure suffering as the people of God, bearing injustice, being purified into holy people, lovingly bearing the image of Christ, extending mercy to our enemies, we are a living picture of the gospel to those around us. 
As we suffer for Jesus, we are his witnesses. Do not be ashamed. You're being purified, Peter says. Verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In this last verse, we find Peter's fourth instruction for suffering as a Christian. Don't be surprised. This isn't abnormal. Don't be discouraged. You're being blessed. Don't be ashamed. You're being purified. And the last one, don't be afraid. Keep loving others. Say that out loud. Don't be afraid. Keep loving others. Entrust your soul to a faithful creator. How? While doing good. You know, one of the greatest temptations when Uh, undergoing persecution is to go underground, to pull back, to hide, to lock the doors, to retreat to safety. Go underground with your faith. But Peter says here in verse 19, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't be afraid. Continue to trust God and trust your soul to him. He will keep it safe. True, you might die. After all, the worst they can do to you is kill you, but God's in the resurrection business. You're going to live forever. So keep engaging, keep loving, keep turning the other cheek. Don't reply to that post on social media. Just love, just love. Keep on doing good. Don't retreat and hide. And while doing good, entrust your soul to a faithful creator. Now, now, why does Peter use that name for God here? Faithful creator. You know, he could have used any name or title for God. Sustainer, redeemer, savior, victor, healer, judge. Those seem to be more applicable to the context of suffering. Why, why faithful creator? Well, Peter has been talking about judgment. So judge would make sense. But what comes after Judgment, recreation, a new heavens, a new earth. Our faithful creator will make all things new. Restoration, renewal, recreation, resurrection. And when we experience suffering as Christians, we must always remember that our God is a faithful creator who has promised recreation. And he calls us into the same work of recreation. As his children, he calls us to keep on doing good in the midst of our suffering in this sin-fraught world. He calls us to move towards chaos and provide order, to move towards ugliness, create beauty, to move towards hate and to give blessing, to move towards pain and share comfort, to move towards injustice and promote justice, to move towards emptiness and supply fullness, to move towards brokenness and bring healing. To unfog, defog the glass for people to see a picture of what's coming when Jesus will return to make all things new. We get to be about that business as followers of Jesus. My friends, we get to be a reflection of our faithful creator who did not give up on this sin-stricken world but made promises of restoration and came to rescue us and loved us even when we crucified him and called us to himself, put his spirit in us and empowers us to be his representatives on earth, warning us that in this world we will have trouble, but to take heart because he has overcome the world. He is a faithful creator. He hasn't given up on his work of creation.
He's faithful, and he will recreate and bring us home to a recreated earth to be with him forever. This is the good news. This is the good news. As the band back, comes back up, will you review Peter's instructions with me one more time? Let's read these aloud together. Number one, don't be surprised. This isn't abnormal. Don't be discouraged. You're being blessed. Don't be ashamed. You're being purified. Don't be afraid. Keep on loving others. You know, suffering reminds us that this world is, is not our own. It's not our um, forever home in its current state. This is not the way it's supposed to be. As Peter calls us right from the get-go in his letter, we are elect exiles, chosen by God, even though we may be at times hated by the world, rejected. We aren't home yet, but my friends, it's coming soon. Would you pray with me? Lord, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, He said to, to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it, is, as it is in heaven. And so we want to pray that this morning. Father, may your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, may we be busy about loving others, proving that we are disciples of Jesus being the living proof of you, a loving God. And Father's um, secularism continues to rise in our culture. Help us not to be afraid. Help us not to be reactive. Lord, we should have known this is coming. May we embrace it with joy. Not rejoicing in sin, but Rejoicing in the fact that we have hope that goes beyond this world and we know how to point people to answers. How to find love in Jesus Christ. Forgiveness, healing, hope, eternal life. And so, Father, if we're counted worthy to suffer like Christ, may we rejoice, not be afraid, not be ashamed, not be discouraged, not be surprised. And may we find a deep bondedness with our Lord and Savior who suffered in our place on our behalf for our sake. In whose name we pray, amen.